Welcome to Season 5 of Tell Me a Story I Don't Know, refreshing and captivating interviews with sports personalities and their connections to Chicago. From Mike Greenberg to Ryan Dempster, Dan McNeil to Sarah Kustak, they reveal entertaining, memorable, and emotional stories some you've never heard before. I'm your host, George Hoffman, and please follow or subscribe to Tell Me a Story I Don't Know on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is proudly sponsored by Vienna Beef, home of the Chicago hot dog and an institution since 1893. Find them at ViennaBeef.com. And by Dynamic Manufacturing, awarded the General Motors Supplier of the Year 23 times. They can be found at DynamicManufacturingInc.com. This week we feature the popular commentator and former Cubs pitcher Ryan Dempster. You always got one or two guys that whether it's comic relief on a bus ride or at a dinner or in the locker room, or it's maybe it's the way, you know, their ability to dance and make things lighthearted, whatever it is, you need it. Because if you're gonna sit there and be pedal to the metal, you know, mentally for all that time, you're gonna crack. And, you know, that was always my goal was to find the one guy on the team who didn't smile a whole lot or laugh a whole lot. And if I could make that guy laugh, I knew I was doing all right. He pitched in relief for the Cubs. Now he's sometimes some comic relief for the team's marquee TV network. Ryan Dempster has run the gamut from starter to closer to pitching for five teams during a 16-year career, half of which was spent on the north side, where he still resides. A fun-loving personality who grew up in Western Canada, Dempster also joined a legion of those who do Harry Carey impressions. Holy cow, so Ryan Dempster, tell me a story I don't know. <laughs> how the origination of the Harry Carey story on my end you know people always think it's because I came to Chicago um, and I started playing for the Cubs but the the truth of the matter was I grew up in a small town outside of Vancouver BC a place called Gibson's British Columbia and uh and my brothers and I would you know we'd always be sitting around kind of having fun at the dinner table and my middle brother Travis was actually does an amazing Harry Carey but uh we, we were doing it long before I, before I ever played for the Cubs. So um, that, that kind of how that all originated. Actually, the first time I ever fell in love with Harry Carey was uh, there was a, there was a game, a Cubs game on WGN and the, uh, the two outs in the ninth inning, there was a runner at second base, uh, got a pop up into that no man's land. You know, the, I got it, you got it shortstop going back. Mm-hmm. Dunstan was going back. Walton came in all this stuff. And I remember Harry Carey calling the game and he said, uh, uh, there's a, a pop-up uh, short center field and it should be the game and the, the ball fell in for the tying run and Harry without missing a beat as the ball fell in just said Jesus Christ <laughs> and, and then went silent for like five minutes and I was like you can't see that on TV. He's going to go to jail. You know, I'm a little kid. And, uh, and sure enough, he did. And he said a lot of other things that kept a lot of people entertained. And he loved the game. He loved the Cubs. And uh, and I think that's something we both have in common. Did you ever listen back to when he was with the White Sox and Jimmy Pearsall? Oh, the two of them. I, I There was times I thought maybe they were taking some sort of acid or some other mushroom. Well, I believe, I believe Jimmy might have. That's for sure. <laughs> The LUP. How did they ever come up with that? Well, look, they, they took what they could get, Harry. Look, the FCC Whoop. said you take these and you go, Loop. Loop. Oh, well. Two balls, two strikes. Look. Hey, Harry, come on, Harry! 
I mean, like that was, I mean, unfortunately, you know, that, uh, that doesn't happen anymore. Uh, but they definitely were a lot of fun to listen to and just, you know, pure entertainment. And you didn't, you know, you didn't have to necessarily be a baseball fan to, to enjoy what they were saying. And, and they'd be talking about things that didn't have to do in the game and just randomly threw in, you know, there's a ground ball, the third out of the first two away, you know, like they would just randomly throw in what happened throughout the stories and, you know, great storytellers and great personalities that, that this game misses for sure. I'm going to take somewhat of a leap of faith that Harry would have loved your personality and calling games you were in. And I think you would have loved it just as much. I appreciate that. I, I, I hope that he would have, you know, I, I think my fun, love and personality, my, um, my hard work that he would have appreciated both of those. Um, and the fact that I probably would have picked the tab up if we were at the lodge or something. <laughs> so he would have loved that as well. You know, many people believe changes have to be made to the game to both speed it up and make it more attractive for a younger generation. What would you do to change it, if at all? I don't know. I, I like Kerry Wood had a great suggestion. He said only give the good players walk-up songs. <laughs> well, I don't know if that's going to speed up the game. Yeah, well, it is because all the guys got to have their, like, you know, their their minutes of dig me before they get in the yeah, box. yeah. So the one thing that I do love, George, is I love the pitch clock. Mm. It's a, let's go. Let's just, let's promote movement. I don't know if that's going to promote the game being shorter, but I feel like it's going to promote it being maybe quicker, a little bit quicker. And, and I think that proves a little bit in the minor leagues. So I think that, you know, everybody kind of moving along, promote swinging the bat. Let's go. Maybe pay guys for hitting 300 again, instead of having a high on base percentage so that, when they get a 2-0 fastball down the middle, they're not taking it, right? They're like, they're go ahead and they're, they're swinging the bat because they're trying to actually like drive it rather than work accounts so they can get a walk so that they can get paid for their high OPS. Well, 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 that's, that's something I think that uh, even Theo, when he was here in Boston, promoted. And so you can see the teams that have the, the slowest games are the Yankees in Boston because they take a lot of pitches. Yeah, they take a lot of pitches. There's a lot of, you know, they grind out at bats. I think instinctually when you have those moments where you're having um you know kind of two rivalry teams like i feel like when i faced the cardinals in st louis in the bottom of the ninth inning as a closer sometimes i felt like those at bats are a little bit more competitive than facing you know maybe the san diego padres closing you know like when it's your rival, they're always, it's like every at-bat is grinded down. Guys are fighting off because there's this added emotional element that I think automatically extends those games just a little bit anyway. So, um, but, but yeah, I mean, that was a, an avenue that people went. It's successful. You get people on base, but at the same time, um, it, slow, it slowed the game down a lot. I, I love the movement. I, I just love the pitch clock. I think it'll promote a lot of really good things. I think you'll see a lot of things happen um, in a positive light of the game. Well, we hear the pitch clock. We hear robot umpires eventually. And there's this, then there's the suggestion of getting rid of the defensive shift. I can sit here and go for days. I, yeah. I understand getting rid of the defensive shift to, a, to an extreme, but I don't know. The game's really hard, right? Like it's a really hard game. Baseball, all, all professional sports are hard, but baseball is a very, very hard game and it's supposed to be hard. Like there's not another league on the moon that we don't know about yet anyways. <laughs> 
So it's supposed to be hard. Why do we want to make it easier? It shouldn't be easier. It should be hard. It should be difficult. It's the major leagues. It's, you know, it's not only getting there, it's staying there, you, the attrition. It's a game of adjustments. And so instead of adjusting, the players don't have to adjust now. We'll just adjust the game to them. And sometimes I think that can just start to be a little bit of a slippery slope. Your career after baseball is thriving. It would appear you and the Cubs marquee network are a perfect fit. Am I right about that? And now, the host of Off the Mound, Ryan Dempster. Welcome to this week's edition of Off the Mound, presented by Sloan. I am your host, Ryan Dempster. And no, I'm not coming to you from my basement. I think it's a great match, yeah. I think, um, you know, I played here for since 2004 to 2012. It's, you know, eight and a half seasons before I got traded away. So um, I, I'm a Cub. I, I played here a long time. You know, it's almost a decade. You're lucky to play in the major leagues for a decade, let alone for one team. And um, you know, and then on top of that, I come back as a special assistant and I'm there through the playoff runs and the World Series. And so, like, I want the Cubs to, to do well. And 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 then, I, you know, I love talking the game of baseball. So I think I think when the Cubs started the network, it was, you know, a logical thing to happen. And I'm glad that it has. It's a great place to work. And, and I'll tell you what, launching a, a new network into the middle of a pandemic and then a <laughs> labor dispute. And the people working there behind the scenes have just done an amazing job to continue to try and put out good product for Cubs fans, for baseball fans, and, and are going to continue to do that. I think you're just seeing the beginning of something that's going to be really great. Did you get a sense that you might be doing this after your career, uh, during your career? You were always a very entertaining interview. Sometimes some of, those in the, some of us in the media can point to somebody and say, you know what, this guy is going to be great doing stuff, whether it's television or radio. A perfect example of that was Eddie Olchek. Did you get that sense? Yeah, it was always something that I was comfortable with. I, I was never the guy who was going to get upset with a media person for asking a question for the most part. I mean, you know, there's been times where I probably get a little testy or I, you know, said I don't want to talk about that. But for the most part, I understand that people have a job to do. And um, so there was that comfortability with me, the media side of it. And also, too, I just had a little different view on what I wanted to do, you know, to be able to use my time talking about the game, about the positive things of the game. There's so many great things. And if we focus on those, the things that guys are doing well, rather than what they're doing wrong, it was just something that I just saw as a natural fit. And I was always goofing around. I would, I, if I was more serious, I probably would have been a better player. Um, <laughs> but also that's like, that's who I am. And that's what I do. And um, I'm always trying to, you know, kind of have that look through the lens. That's my lens. That's what I look through. I remember doing an interview, with, uh, we brought this up, I was talking with somebody, Jay Randolph, um, who was a broadcaster for the Marlins when I was coming up, and Jay's a legendary broadcaster. He was interviewing me after a start in Dodger Stadium, and I, I just thought it was a good idea as a young kid. I was like, I'm going to wear Billy, remember those Billy Bob teeth, those fake teeth? You could oh, wear? you didn't. And I did, and, and, <laughs> and he handled it all so seamless, and he said, Ryan, I really see that you could maybe use a little bit of dental work, and I just... <laughs> Didn't skip a beat. Just told him I hadn't taken full advantage of the major league dental program yet, but that was something I was looking into. Like that was always how I was and guys on my team knew it and, and I'm comfortable with that. And, I'm, and I enjoyed being that way. You know, there was a guy now I, I'm maybe I'm forgetting his name, Bill Lee, the Red Sox pitcher. Is yeah, he's still pitching by the way. He threw three, uh, three pop-ups. He threw one inning for the Savannah bananas. 
I mean, he's still doing it. The guy's still pitching at 75 years old. It's amazing. 75. Let me tell you something. As a young reporter, he was as offbeat as you get, but he was also hysterical. The game, this game, any game needs people like that. People that are just a little, people that are playing with a 54 card deck. Yeah, well, it's 162 day, games <laughs> over 180 days. Spring training, all the things that happen. You're with traveling with all these people. You know, you see them more than you see your own family. If everybody's serious, things are going to come to a head. And I think that's the general consensus when it comes to sports teams. You always got one or two guys that, whether it's comic relief on a bus ride or at a dinner or in the locker room, or it's maybe it's the way, you know, their ability to dance and make things lighthearted, whatever it is, you need it. Because if you're going to sit there and be pedal to metal, you know, mentally for all that time, you're going to crack. And, you know, that was always my goal was to find the one guy on the team who didn't smile a whole lot or laugh a whole lot. And if I could make that guy laugh, I knew I was mm -hmm. doing all right. Did you know General Motors 2021 Supplier of the Year is located in Hillside, Illinois? Dynamic Manufacturing not only remanufactures transmissions for the likes of GM, but also as a state-of-the-art facility. Its capabilities include engineering new or existing products, along with manufacturing, machining, logistics, and re-energizing used batteries for electric cars and energy storage systems. I've seen their operation firsthand, and their nearly 1 million square feet of operating space is extremely impressive. Dynamic was founded by the late, great John Partipillo in 1955 and is still family-owned and operated by the next generation. For more information about Dynamic Manufacturing, visit their website at dynamicmanufacturinginc.com. Dynamic Manufacturing. Honor the legacy. Pioneer the future. You're one of a handful of players who were employed by both the Cubs and the Red Sox. So tell me a story I don't know. What was it like to perform in the oldest and most revered stadiums in this country, Wrigley Field and Fenway Park? Yeah, I think, you know, I mean, just how lucky and blessed I was to be able to not just play in the major leagues, but play for two stadiums like that. I think, you know, one of my favorite things, I, I, one time I joined in Boston, I, I was on my way to the ballpark and I just joined the tour before there was even a Fenway Park and back before there was even a Boston Red Sox because we're starting off in the year 1903. And why we're starting in 1903 is because 1903 is the year of the very first ever World Series. I was just on the back of the tour and just started asking questions to the tour guide until people started to realize that I played for the Red Sox. It was pretty, pretty entertaining. <laughs> But stuff like that, like, and I, and I honestly truly was learning a little bit because, you know, as a player, I was, it was my first year there. So I wanted to know a little bit and being able to do that. Um, and, and, and Wrigley, like I got to pitch um, to me, Wrigley field, there's, there's no better ballpark and that's not a disrespect, but pitching at Fenway coming out of the home dugout, there's not a, there's not a more unique backdrop and perspective as a visiting player you come out you see the right field you see field you got to look to your left to see the green monster at Fenway when you walk up those stairs and you see that gigantic wall you're like yes I'm going to turn a ton of doubles into singles today when I was in Boston covering the White Sox they had not refurbished the stadium yet so the locker room was itty bitty. And I also remember when the Cubs locker room was itty bitty and I'm talking about way back when it was down the left field line so you were in both ballparks, and I don't know if you were with the Red Sox after they refurbished the ballpark, but what would you say, how do they look now to you 
refurbished. Yeah, good. I thought Boston did an amazing job of keeping the look and the feel like it was because I, I, you know, was played against them before that all got done and then afterwards. And I just thought it, it aesthetically looked the same, the way that scoreboard colors were and the way that, you know, the things were done inside the ballpark that, it, you know, I'm sure if you're a lifelong Red Sox fan and you've been going there forever, you notice, but you know, to the casual eye or to somebody who wasn't there all the time, it's like, oh man, this, they did a, a bang up job. And I think Wrigley tried to mirror a lot of those things because when you're trying to hold the integrity of a historic ballpark like that, you want to keep those kind of feelings. And sure. Does it look the same with a gigantic jumbotron? No, but I mean, we're also in 2022, so you got to kind of realize you got to move with the times, but I think, you know, from a, from a nostalgic or an aesthetically nostalgic point, I think they still feel the same. And and we felt that as players, you didn't feel like you were playing in some sort of fancy new stadium just because there was upgrades. It's still the core of it still felt the same. And uh, yeah, just uh, just great ballparks and like just special places to be and be able to take my parents and my family and my dad, my dad and I after the World Series playing catch out at Fenway Park, knowing it was going to be my last mm-hmm. year and kind of moments like that were, were pretty special, taking him inside the Green Monster to sign his name and, um, you know, moments like that are way... Those are the things that I remember more than probably any pitch I ever threw, minus that last one in game one of the World Series. But yeah, just just special moments like that. And all those ballparks, take my dad to Yankee Stadium. My dad sprinkled my aunt's ashes on Yankee Stadium field, which was pretty cool. So um, my aunt Doris was a gigantic uh, Yankee fan um, growing up and she uh, she passed away. And then my dad took some of her ashes in a little uh, like like a you know, a prescription bottle uh, and took it out in the field during kind of pregame. I was doing a bullpen and stuff and he was sprinkling them out there. And coincidentally, the last time after that, I never pitched the Yankee stadium again until the 2008 all-star game when I, in the bottom of the ninth inning at Yankee stadium, and they struck out the side. And Drew takes strike three and we are going into the 10th. How about Ryan Dempster coming out of the bullpen and striking out the side in the ninth? So if you don't tell me that the ghosts of Yankee Stadium include my Aunt Doris, well, then I'm sorry <laughs> you're wrong because she took care of me that day. <laughs> That's a fabulous story. It really is. I'm thinking the fandom of the Cubs and the Red Sox might be incomparable. Oh, no doubt. Yeah. I mean, it really is because we travel so well, like just like, when we would go on the road, you know, when I was with the Cubs everywhere we went, you go out west, you go to San Diego, Cubs fans everywhere. You go to L.A., Cubs fans everywhere. You go to Arizona, there's way more Cubs fans than there is Diamondback fans. And same with the Red Sox. You know, you're going up and down, you go to Boston and play there, and now all of a sudden you go on the road, half those road games were home games. It's the way the fans came out. So it, it really, really was. And, and, you know, a little bit of difference, like, you know, and I think especially after the Red Sox won in 04, you know, there was that relief so there wasn't like what bad's going to happen that we were kind of experiencing with the Cubs until they finally won. It was more like, you know, like you better, you better do your job. And there was this expectation, um, you know, people at Fenway really come to the ballpark and they're on every pitch. They don't take a second. Um, they are, they are on it, you know, whereas at Wrigley they're on it, but they're also willing to like take some time out to make some snake cups in the bleachers or <laughs> have a little bit of fun that way, or, you know, play, play mound ball, whatever it is, there, there's a little bit more of a party type aspect, but there's also the same amount of passion and love for their team. And, and, and you just feel it, you see it, you feel it. Um, you know, no matter you're in an airport or 
you're at a gym somewhere in the middle of the country, somebody's got a cub hat on and it's, it's pretty special. The other part too is the seventh inning stretch. In Fenway for years and years and years now, it's been Neil Diamond's uh, Sweet Caroline. at Wrigley Field, it's been taking out to the ball game, whether it's a guest uh, speaker or a guest singer, or it's Harry Carey. set apart as well yeah no absolutely I mean and I, I thought that was so cool because when I left you know and I had a great time in Texas but I was like where's this entertainment factor that we get so much I've been having this for the last nine years so um all of a sudden you go to Boston and um you, you get the same thing right the Sweet Caroline and at one point we actually had Neil Diamond out there doing it so it, it's pretty pretty special when you got places like that that are packed every night made me really just you know constantly pinch myself and appreciate what I had because I came up with the Florida Marlins and when you're when you're down there pitching in front of 347 people (laughs) and all of a sudden you actually get to go to like you know a a stadium where fans come out in droves like that it makes makes you appreciate what you have and the grass isn't always greener on the other side that's for sure you've had quite a career in the major leagues but take me back to your days with the Cubs you signed with them as a free agent uh, following Tommy John surgery, if I'm not correct with the Reds. So you joined the Cubs in August in what was a tumultuous last two months of the season. They blew a chance to make the playoffs again. Tough circumstances to join a club, to say the least. Yeah, I mean, well, and like when I when I got there and, and came up, originally I was rehabbing as a starter. I was going through all that stuff as a starter. And then uh, just kind of reached out to to Jim Hendry and to Dusty about, hey, listen, like our starters were all pitching well. We, we just struggled you know, offensively that last little stretch. And I just said, Hey, maybe I can help out out of the pen. And they put me in the pen and had some opportunities to do that, which was, you know, fun. But at the same time, the core of me was a starting pitcher. I'd I'd kind of been there my, my whole career for the most part. I mean, minus, you know, a couple games at the beginning of my career in 1998 and, and a few in 2003, two relief appearances, I was a starting pitcher. So, um, you know, just trying to help out however I could. And, yeah, it was a bummer because especially coming off of 2003 and in 2004, we were good again and then just faltered down the stretch. And you know, that series in New York killed us. And then we came home and uh, the Reds and then the Braves took care of us. And it was, it was, it was brutal. It was, it was kind of like the beginning of the end for Dusty in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Like 05, you know, we were good, but not good enough. And then, you know, 06 was his last year there. So it was, it was a tough time, but uh, you know, it was a good opportunity to, to, feel what it was like to be a closer the next year, making making some starts and then going into the bullpen. I don't think I've ever had that great of a run, even as a starting pitcher. I mean, to go out there and convert 33 of 35 saves and the other two that I blew, we won. So I said as a closer that year, I don't, I mean, I might've pitched in some games we were losing to get anything to work, but you know, to go out there and never, never be responsible for a loss as a closer, man, that was, that was pretty special. Man, you had one hell of a year. So now we go to 2008. You're back 
to being a starter. You had a banner year. The Cubs went to the playoffs. They did it again in 2009. Only didn't win a single game in either postseason. Tell me a story I don't know. The highs and lows of those two years. You know what's crazy about that? 2007, we you know we didn't we didn't play very well against against Arizona. In 2008, we were great. We had a great team. Field towards the right field foul line. Ryan Dempster hits a shot pass for call into the left field for a hit. Dempster, who was 10 for 61 at the plate this year. And we have had some hard hit balls here in the second inning against Derek Lowe, starting with Jim Edmonds with his line drive to center. And it was a combination of us not playing very well in 2008 and also the Dodgers playing really well. I mean, they just got Manny Ramirez, you know, and so it, it was hard. Um, you know, it's an interesting, you said, tell me a story. I don't know. So you remember that game too? We made those, those four errors. Yeah. And coincidentally, they were made by each of the infielders. And, and Giovanni Soto was our, you know, catcher, rookie of the year. Um, he had this moment behind home plate, which we talked about, is that at least I, at least I didn't make an error. You know, like in his head, he's like, I, I'm the only one who hasn't made an error today. Well, in that moment, at that time, that's when, for people who didn't realize this, Soto started to develop a little bit of a case of the yips. You know, what... Mackie Sasser had or Chuck Novel. Yes. Had. He couldn't throw the ball back to the pitcher. He had to do this whole routine in order to throw the ball back to the pitcher, which he carried through his, the entire rest of his career. You know, I just commend him for being able to fight through that and get 10 years in the big leagues and all those kind of things, because that could have derailed him right there, but he managed that all really well, but that's where that all started. Want to hear more great guests on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know? It's easy. Just follow me on social media, at George Offman. That's O-F-M-A-N. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please follow or subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the, did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. We return with Ryan Dempster on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. 
while you were with the Cubs, you played under, I believe, five managers, including the aforementioned Dusty Baker and the uniquely loquacious Lou Pinello. What an experience that had to be. Yeah, I was blessed, man. I got my first manager in the big leagues was Jim Leland. Then I got to play for Dusty Baker. I got to play for Bob Boone. And then, get, uh, you know, go from Dusty to Lou Pinella. I mean, legend to legend. You know, they're baseball minds. And, you know, Dusty had a, definitely a little bit more compassion at the time for, for you as a human than Lou might have at times. <laughs> uh, I always said, if, you know, if you, uh, if you did well, uh, you were treated like his son. If you, you know, if you were struggling or you were walking, guys, it was like the dog who accidentally made a mistake on the carpet. Um, it was, it was, uh, it was tough at times, but, but he really, he really was great to me. Lou was man. He, he treated me um, very, very well. You know, he was honest with me. He's got a wonderful personality. I mean, uh, he's loosey goosey and uh, he likes to have fun. When it's time to get serious, he gets, he gets serious and he's got leadership qualities. Yeah. He, people, people, uh, players like him and listen to him. He gave me the opportunity to go start again, which, you know, led to uh, me end up having one of the best years of my career. And, um, you know, he's definitely a, a bright baseball man. He knew a lot about the game of baseball and how the game works and, and, and life too. He was so much fun to talk to on airplanes or at the field early out on the, out on the um, bench and happy that I had a chance to play for him because we had a lot of fun those years and, uh, and he was entertaining. I think one of my favorite ones was when, there was a game in Colorado that he got thrown out of. And for whatever reason, when you're in Colorado, the bench and the field feel very far away from each other. Like when you're going out to the mound, I don't know why, maybe there, I know there is more foul territory, but it feel, and it's, maybe it's the high altitude. It feels like it's a mile away. Hmm. So Lou goes out to argue a play at second base and he goes out there and, and he feels like he's been gone forever. Like we're worried about him because he's so, it took so long to get out there. <laughs> and he, you know, he loses it. He gets thrown out of the game and he comes down the dugout. We're thinking we need to grab the oxygen tank. <laughs> he goes straight up the stairs into his office door closed. And then all of a sudden he comes out and we weren't playing very well at the time. And he comes out and he's in his tidy whiteies and that's it. And he looks like he's got his, it's the eighth inning. He looks like he's combed his hair with a pork chop and, he just kind of comes out. He looks up at the TV and his eyes are kind of just barely open. And I'm like, he's took a nap in there. And <laughs> he looks up at the TV. We're getting our, our tails kicked in. And he just goes, yeah, that's what I thought. Where's the food? <laughs> <laughs> it was so great. It was so great. Oh, that's funny. Theo Epstein takes over the Cubs in, what, 2011, or actually 2010. He eventually trades you to Texas in 2012. You had a short run there, then in Boston, where you were involved in what was then a really celebrated and controversial confrontation with who I will best describe as the notorious Alex Rodriguez. I believe you were both a villain and a hero, but more the latter. Well, yeah, I mean, it depends on what fan base you're talking to. or True. Coincidentally, everybody everybody thought I hit him because of the steroid controversy. But the reality was, is I signed with the Boston Red Sox. I was back home in my, in my hometown. I was at my parents' place with my brothers and we were having a couple beers after I got my new contract. And my one brother was like, Hey, I got a great idea, dude. You should hit a rod at Fenway. The first time you face him, you'll never pay for a beer in Boston the rest of your life. <laughs> and you like, did it. Cool. 
this is the first time we've seen something like this since Alex Rodriguez returned, and I think we can say with some certainty what the intent was after Dempster hit him on the 3 0 pitch. What'd you think, guys? It was intentional as it gets. Yeah. And so, well, then it just all started, kept ha happening and all the things. And yeah, I just, I was just making a, a stand against something that I'm definitely not perfect by any means. And I've made plenty of mistakes in my life, and we all make mistakes. You know, at the time he was like basically going and suing our union and saying, hey, you're not representing me in a fair light. And at that point, it made a no brainer to try and gun for that free beer for the rest of my life, you know, because it was like enough, dude, like enough. Stop with it. Just take your punishment and move on and we'll all be fine. And I think it was definitely high intensity. I don't think I've ever been a part of something so intense. And yeah, it was I got I got suspended for five days for hitting a suspended guy. The only time in my career I got suspended. It was funny, a reporter in New York afterwards said, you know, ever since you hit Alex Rodriguez, you uh, they have the second best record in baseball. It's like you really sparked them. And I just answered his question with a question, which I don't typically like to do. And I just said, oh, really? Well, who has the best record in baseball since then? And he said, well, you guys. So I guess I fired my team up more than I fired their team up. You never know. You never know how a team can get fired up. You eventually retired not long after that. You came back with the Cubs where you were an assistant to, to Theo. Why didn't you pursue that part of your career? I don't know. I think just having a family, I got, you know, for, uh, that's a full-time job that you got to just really pour everything into to be successful. And if I'm going to do anything, I want to be successful at it. And, and so, but I, but I really enjoyed it. I enjoy being around the guys and, you know, offering a, a some advice or being an ear or another sounding board, whatever it could be. And asked when I asked, give my honest opinion and, um, and just try to be a positive force around those guys. And I think that, you know, I think I did that. And George, let's be honest. I come back in the winter of 2014, we go to the NLCS 2015. We won in 2016 NLCS 2017. I think I was doing my job, you know, I mean, Theo, I did some great, <laughs> Theo was doing some great things, but I signed in 2014 that winter. It might've been the best off season signing the Cubs have ever had. There you go. I knew it. it. It's all about Ryan. He did a great job. That's great. <laughs> you grew up in British Columbia, beautiful area of Canada. I've been there several times, including the breathtaking butchered gardens. Tell me a story I don't know about those times and why a young Canadian athlete didn't become a star in the National Hockey League. Well, I didn't become a star in the National Hockey League because I skated like Happy Gilmore. Uh, <laughs> And apparently you got to be able to stop on both <laughs> your right and your left side and skate back. Oh, that good, huh? That, that was not going to happen. Not at the time. Um, yeah, you know, I grew up in this small little town. My, my family loved baseball. They all played slow pitch. Um, you know, so I, I grew up kind of around that kind of, you know, the weekend tournaments in our hometown. And um, my, my papa, my, my dad's dad was a big baseball fan. So when I'd go to sleepovers at my nan and papa's house, we'd watch Blue Jay games or Mariner games and, wake up Saturday mornings and watch, you know, expo games on the French channel. And I just, I loved it. I just fell in love with baseball right away and just continued. And then when I was 16, 17 years old, I was, I was going uh, to school on like Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays. I would finish school at like two o'clock just before two, I'd run out and catch the, the bus from in front of my school down to the ferry. So it's not an Island, but there's no roads that go there. You could backcountry it for a day or so and maybe make your way over there, maybe two days. And then I would take a 40-minute ferry ride, um, big ferries, so like car, cars get on there, big passenger ferries. And uh, I would ferry over, and then I'd run off the ferry to the, 
to the bus down there because if I walked, I couldn't get the express bus. So I had to sprint off the bus and I could nail the express bus, which would drop me off at Ambleside Park in West Vancouver do practice with the team. And then I had a teammate who lived close to the ferry. You know, he would give me a ride there at night. I'd take the 915 ferry home that night, maybe do my homework on the ferry if, if I wasn't caught up in too much pole position or Donkey Kong. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then, you know, do it all again. So I would, it was, it was a lot of work. I, I lived on a ferry for, you know, a lot of my high school life, just being able to make that commitment to baseball. So it was, uh, it was an interesting way to go about it all and definitely made me, um, made me appreciate it a little bit more coming where I came from, but also, you know, it made me understand what sacrifice is. And sometimes you have to give up some things or do some things you don't want to necessarily do in order to attain the goals that you want. I have to ask this of a Canadian. Yes, there were, yes, yes. There were killer whales that I would see occasionally. <laughs> on the back of the no, that wasn't it. <laughs> Did you ever compete in curling, which is one of the oddest sports I have ever seen? Oh yeah. Yeah. Curling classes at high school occasions. So, Oh my. Yeah. And you know, you get, you get some buddies together with a, a cooler full of ice cold sodas, you know, <laughs> what, a, what a good time. It's a lot harder than people think, you know, all the people at home on the couch watching the Olympics and like, I could curl. It's like, no, you can't. Like it's, it's very hard. You need balance. You need, you know, precision type dart throwing abilities with a rock. Um, yeah, it's, it was, it was a lot of fun. I, I enjoy curling. I think it's great to me. There's nothing better than the, the, the one, the rock is let go of the hand mm -hmm. and then all the yelling that comes afterwards, the sweep, the hurry hard, the, 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 nope, nope. Yeah. You know, like <laughs> I, I just love that. Like to me, that is just, there's no other sport that brings it like that. Vienna Beef, two words synonymous with hot dogs. They're the home of the Chicago hot dog and an institution since 1893. If you've had a hot dog, chances are it was from Vienna. And did you know there are more locations selling Vienna in Chicago than McDonald's, Burger King, and Wendy's combined? There's nothing like biting into a juicy and delicious pure beef Vienna hot dog. Dragged through the garden, which includes yellow mustard, onions, relish, tomatoes, sport peppers, pickles, and some celery salt. And oh, those Polish sausages dripping with flavor. And look for the spicy smoked sausage available in your local retail stores. It includes a perfect blend of seasonings such as crushed red peppers and brown sugar, creating a bold and zesty taste. Vienna products are available in restaurants, grocery stores, and entertainment venues such as the ballparks, cups, and socks, stadiums, museums, and zoos. Plus, you can purchase them online, coast to coast at ViennaBeef.com and on Amazon. And remember, Vienna is not just hot dogs and sausages. Look for their farm makers' chili, mini bagel dogs, condiments, and classic deli meats. Take it from a guy who was weaned on, then sold Vienna products. It's the mark of excellence since 1893. Check them out at ViennaBeef.com. Wow, I've never heard curling described that way. We've talked about your positive and humorous approach to life, but that was clearly and severely tested in 2009 with the birth of your daughter, Riley. She was born with a rare disorder and you went public with it. First, how is she doing today? And second, please explain what she experienced or is she still experiencing it? Yeah, she's she, first she's doing great. She's going to be 13 here um shortly and uh she's acting everything like a normal 13 year old teenager soon to be teenager would act like so that couldn't make me any happier 
Um, she's doing really well. She's, you know, going to Chicago public school here. She, she does, she does great. She loves art and music and she got, you know, great with her friends and, um, a lot of the, a lot of the health things she's battled through, but she's, I think, you know, it's a syndrome, so it's not a disease, right? There's no cure. So you're going to deal with these things for, for the rest of your life. And she was born with 22 Q deletion syndromes. What that is, is a partial deletion of your 22nd chromosome. And uh, it affects kind of all children differently and some children in the same ways, but kind of each child's unique with their own uh, challenges and issues. And for Riley, you know, when she was born, she uh, was in the hospital in the NICU for, for three months. She had a feeding tube put in, a, a tracheotomy done. She had all these things um, done that were, um, you know, challenging, very, very challenging. And, um, you know, through different therapies and early intervention, like I can't stress that enough. When you have a child, no matter what it is they're going through, um, any kind of issues, early intervention is is honestly what betters their life for the future. And uh, and she um, she's doing great because of all that. And, you know, coming public about it wasn't easy to do, but at the same time, I saw so many parents who were going through the same thing with the same syndrome, which coincidentally is the second most common genetic syndrome in the world behind Down syndrome. I did not and know people, that. Yeah, see, like that's that was my consensus when I found out. And then, you know, we went from going to Children's Hospital in Chicago um, at Lurie's where they were calling Philadelphia, calling CHOP out there to get all the information about Riley to from that to um, now Children's Hospital here has a 22Q clinic and they have all the information. So I really, truly believe that Riley's story has saved some children's lives. And at the very least, it's definitely made a lot of children's lives better and their family lives better. And, you know, I always tell her all the time, you, you did more in the first year of life than I'll ever do in my entire life. And it's pretty special. She, she's a special girl. So you began a family foundation to support young adults with this disorder. Yeah, we had the Dempster Family Foundation going for years and we had amazing fundraisers and great partners in the, the city of Chicago. Like, you know, people say, why'd you stay in Chicago? I'm like the people, I mean, the way they rally around us and and uh, and our family and um you know uh, was really really special we since transitioned that out of the dempster family foundation and now it's just the 22q family foundation um run by ryan and lindsey garcia uh chicago natives who uh, actually live out in colorado now but um they've done a tremendous job of keeping the programs going and um we continue to do fundraisers when we can and to create awareness and we run 22q learning stations and help families get ieps for their children and all kinds of different things so it's uh it's just been uh it's been an absolute honor to be able to have something like this that helps make an impact in families and because that's what it's all about i mean when you're done playing baseball they just keep playing baseball games they don't care what you did um because you're not doing it anymore and, and when you can really make a difference off the field well that's that's the most important thing you can do you have many sides to you, professional major league pitcher, a guy who can make people laugh, devoted to the community, witnessed two nominations for the Roberto Clemente Award. You really have run the gamut, Ryan. <laughs> yeah, I, I, uh, I, maybe that's because I can't still sit still long enough. I <laughs> so pretty busy and I, I like new challenges and, and I like, you know, trying to make a difference and, um, you know, trying to learn from, learn from mistakes, uh, you know, and, and try and better myself through that. Um, but, you know, I, I think, you know, I was so lucky and so blessed, George, that when I, when I was younger, my parents, we grew up with nothing, no money. Like, 
you know, my parents were young. My mom had me at 17 years old. My dad was 21. Like they're young, you know? And so how, how do they, and they're still together to this day. They've been married for, you know, coming up on 45 years now. And wow. um, it's, it's really, really special. And I had a town and a community that, you know, helped me out so, so much when I was a kid, you know, supportive teachers that when I was missing class, they were there, you know, going away on trips and my parents couldn't afford it. And somebody in the town who owned a business or had money was like, here you go, I'll sponsor you. And, you know, to me, uh, I'm always grateful for that and I'll never forget that. And so, you know, what I can ever do to give back, whether, you know, if that's money, great, but more importantly, if it's my time, then that's even more important. And, and just try to bring a smile to people's face, you know, especially nowadays, it's been a, it's been a tough go for everybody for a few years now. And we all need to be able to find a way to smile and be happy and, and stress free right now. It's hard to do, but if I can do a little bit of that, then, you know, I'm doing something better with my life. Why do I get the feeling eh, maybe 20, 25 years from now when your kids are grown, you're going to wind up in some league throwing three pitches, just the way Bill Lee did. Yeah. You funny you say that I was, uh, I was out in Bend, Oregon. There's a summer league there, the Bend Elks play. Mm -hmm. And I thought that same thing. I'm like, you know, one of these days, who knows? Maybe <laughs> I'm a little bit older. I still throw the baseball with my son all the time. I can still spin it a little bit, a little tiny bit. So, um, yeah, the game of baseball, you know, it doesn't define who I am, but it's such a huge part of my life has always been such a huge part of my life that it always will, you know, whether that's teaching kids how to play the game, um, talking about the game, commentating on the game, or playing it myself. I just, I love it. And I've been extremely lucky to be able to do it since I was four years old. And I hope it never ends. I asked this final question to all my guests. If not for sports, what would you have been? <laughs> uh, my babysitter when I was growing up said a stand-up comic, uh, which <laughs> I, I try my hand at occasionally too. So, um, yeah, I think honestly, I probably think uh, I would have went down that route. I would have tried to like figure out a way to get into, you know, some sort of acting. You know, I was the guy who, you know, wasn't afraid when they when they said it was rookie dress-up day. You know, I was excited. I was like, wait, we only get one day. <laughs> Sucks. Can't we have a rookie dress a month? Put something. You don't want to wear that? I'll switch with you. Um, yeah, so I, I, I kind of feel like maybe that would have been an avenue. But, you know, I, I also just, you know, really enjoy um, trying to help, you know, younger generation of players. So, I don't know, maybe a high school PE teacher or a high school baseball coach. That would have been a lot of fun, too. I was hoping this was going to be a very entertaining interview. It was, and then some. Have fun with everything you're doing, Ryan. And my guess is you will. Thank you so much for telling me a story I don't know. You bet, George. Thanks for having me on. My thanks to the Marquee Network, Major League Baseball, the Red Sox Tours, TBS and ESPN for those terrific highlights. My thanks as always to TJ Reeves for being a guiding force behind this podcast, Will Hatzel for his expert editing and mixing, and Nick Tochi for our excellent graphics. And to our wonderful sponsors, Dynamic Manufacturing and Vienna B for their generous support. Tune in next week for another episode of Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. I'm George Hoffman, and that's all she wrote.